caregivers. It takes students to figure out how we can better care for each other. And if we're worried about someone, what do you do, mm -hmm. right? You might not be the person who can magically fix what's going on, but you sure can help find what might help that person who's in crisis or who might need support. Is there a website um, or somewhere that folks can go to get more resources on, on the topic today? Yeah, the state has an Office of Suicide Prevention. They have tons of handouts and resources. Um, they give you information on text lines, but the Office of Suicide Prevention for the state is a mm -hmm. great website if you're looking for more information. Uh, the Colorado Crisis Walk-In Centers is a great resource mm -hmm. because you can walk in with a child, access a clinician who then is gonna help identify if your child needs more support, they need counseling, if they just need someone to check in with them at school, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of triage, what does that child need? And that's a free resource. So you mm -hmm. can go onto their website. I believe they have five locations around the Denver Metro. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they're free. You can go in and do that. So you can learn information that way. And then of course, I'm gonna bring it back to schools. Right? You can reach out to your school mental health provider, ask for a fact sheet, a tip sheet, ask about those trainings so that you too can grow your skills as a parent. Ask about the programming we do with students because right now we do programming in fifth grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, and 12th grade. Uh, and we use different programming for those different grades really to help make sure that our kids have adapted and, and developed the coping skills that they need to be healthy and they know what to do if they're not feeling great. Thank you for sharing those resources. Before we go, I want to share with everyone listening in and watching uh, some facts around suicide. Overall, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in Colorado. Eight times as many people died by suicide. The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Sixteenth meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order, and ask Amy to call the roll. Sure. Jack Blumenthal. Here. Florine Neff. Here. Charles Scheibe. Here. Edward Schultz. Here. Frank Rowe. Here. Tim O'Brien. Here. Uh, next item: approval of the October meeting minutes. Is there a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Thank you. Any discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? The minutes are approved. Um, you all have a copy of the 2022 Annual Comprehensive Financial Report. We're not going to read it to you, so uh, you can read it at your leisure. Um, next item is our report on affordable housing audit. Sonia, do you want to introduce the audit team? And then I will ask. Uh, the department if they want to introduce themselves and make any opening remarks. Okay. Ready? Thank you. Oh, well, I think I will start off with a brief introduction and I can turn it over to Cars sure. for the introductions. Yep. Okay, great. So good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sonia Montana and I was the 
senior audit manager on this audit. So I will just provide a brief introduction to let everyone know why we conducted this audit. Uh, cities across the country are impacted by the shortage of affordable housing. And over the last several years, different factors have driven up the price of housing, including economic growth, rising interest rates, and rising construction costs. Denver's growing population can be contributed to Colorado's job market, outdoor activities, and beautiful scenery. But as more people have moved here from the different markets, the availability for affordable housing has decreased, driving up the cost of homes. The city and county of Denver has multiple funding sources to use towards affordable housing. So one area of focus for our audit was to evaluate the efficiency and effectiveness of managing those funds. During the last several months, additional efforts have been put in place to address affordable housing in the city by the new administration. So we hope this audit provides hosts with some recommendations that will help them in managing the affordable housing in the future. And I will now turn it over to Cars to introduce the team. Great. Good morning, Auditor and Audit Committee members. My name is Cara Sepstein, and I was the manager on the affordable housing audit that we're presenting this morning. I'm joined at the table by Tyson Fasone, Lead Auditor, and Senior Auditors, Hannah Thaw and Jackson Rossmith. Dan O'Connor, Senior Auditor, and Francis Jusu, Associate Auditor, also worked on the audit and are seated in the gallery. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the dedicated staff at the Department of Housing Stability for their cooperation and help during the audit and also for the work that you do every day on behalf of the people in the city. Um, can we ask the department to introduce themselves and if you have any opening remarks, this would be a good time. Um, and quick mic, do I just hold? Oh, um, no, you can just, just kind of. All right, very good. Well, good morning all. My name is Jennifer Bice and I am the Interim Executive Director of the Department of Housing Stability. Uh, thank you all for the time here this morning to talk through the affordable housing audit. I think certainly as we have gone through this process with Karis and team, there are a number of recommendations that we agree with, many that we are already putting into place, and a few areas where I think we will continue to um, as we dig in today, uh, continue to uh, look at our, particularly around our inspections process where we may have some differences of opinion, uh, but appreciate the, the diligent work of the audit team uh, through this process. And good morning, everybody. I'm Renee Gallegos. I'm the Deputy Director of Housing Opportunity in the Department of Housing Stability. Uh, so I lead our team, our, our wonderful team of development officers, um, our asset management uh, and compliance team, our capital projects team, uh, and um, our catalytic projects team. So I, I uh, want to also express my appreciation to the team for their um, de deep commitment of time and their expertise to, to uh, spend time with our staff to evaluate our programs and to provide a number of recommendations that we're happy to discuss with you today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, shall we begin? Great. Thank you. At a federal level, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development administers federal housing and urban development laws. The department says housing is affordable when costs including rent or mortgage and utilities amount to less than 30% of a resident's income. Households paying more than 30% are considered to be cost burdened and those spending 50% or more are considered to be severely cost burdened. Household affordability is calculated using the area median income of households in a city and county of Denver, in a city and county, and is determined by the federal department. As shown in figure one from page three of the report, 
uh, one in three Denver households pays more than 30% of their income on housing. Additionally, Colorado is ranked as the eighth most unaffordable state for housing in 2022, and a household would need to make more than double Denver's 2023 minimum wage to pay no more than that 30% of their income for the average month monthly rent. At a local level, the Department of Housing Stability was created in September 2019 by then Mayor Michael Hancock. The department's mission is to build a healthy, housed, and connected Denver through their investments, policies, and partnerships. The department has three divisions, operations, housing stability and homelessness resolution, and housing opportunity. We focused our audit only on the housing opportunity division, but also engaged with operations because their work impacts the other, three, other two. As outlined in Table 1 on page 4, the Housing Opportunity Division's goal as it relates to affordable housing is for residents to have equitable access to housing options that meet their affordability needs and the opportunity to increase wealth through home ownership. The Operations Division's goal is for Denver residents and partners to receive efficient, timely, and transparent support and have confidence that the department is measuring what matters and effectively engaging the community. The department's five-year strategic plan outlines 14 total goals across all three of the divisions. However, the department faces challenges outside of its control as it pursues its goals. First, the COVID-19 pandemic created new challenges, such as budget cuts, and worsened existing conditions with affordable housing and unemployment rates. Additionally, some department staff are required to work in the Emergency Operations Center when the mayor activates it, and since 2020, the center has been activated 16 times, causing key department staff to be otherwise engaged. And finally, the department is impacted by whether developers are even interested in building affordable housing in Denver and the overall market and economic conditions. As shown in Figure 2 from the report on page 6, in 2016, the City Council created two affordable housing funds known collectively as the Affordable Housing Fund. It provided monies for housing development, preservation, and programs, and was funded by linkage fees, a per-square-foot fee from new developments, and also property tax. Two years later, in October 2018, use tax on recreational marijuana was added to the fund. And in June 2022, the City, City Council approved the expanding affordable housing policy, which mandated the creation of additional affordable housing options and support funding for the Affordable Housing Fund. Between 2017 and 2023, the Affordable Housing Fund has generated about $190 million. This is not the first time that the Denver Auditor's Office has audited affordable housing. In 2018 and 19, we evaluated the Office of Economic Development, which is now known as Denver Economic Development and Opportunity. Findings from the two audits related to incorrect calculations of sale and resale prices, poor oversight, and poor communication. The audits made 23 recommendations in combination, of which the agency had disagreed with six. In our follow-ups audits since 2020, we found the Economic Development and Opportunity transferred responsibility for affordable housing to the new Department of Housing Stability. 13 of the 17 recommendations that the agency actually agreed with were fully implemented. However, given the agency's history of not fully implementing or sometimes disagreeing with recommendations to approve effectiveness of affordable housing operations in the city, but also the amount of money being spent on affordable housing, our office considered the risk to be a high priority that warranted another audit. As shown on the highlights page of the report, the objective of our audit was two-part. First, to determine the extent to which the Department of Housing Stability is efficiently and effectively using taxpayer funding 
to develop and preserve affordable housing and achieve its department goals. And second, to assess whether the Department of Housing Stability is prepared to implement new technology that supports its operational objectives, maintains data integrity and security, and fulfills city, city, city system of record requirements. As shown on page 61, for the scope of the audit, we reviewed the department's oversight of affordable housing. This included analyses of funding sources and uses, affordable housing inspections, asset management, and contract compliance. This audit included a review of documentation and data from January 2019 through May 2023. And when analyzing if the department was prepared to implement new technology, we reviewed documentation from June 2022 through May 2023. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any questions or comments on the background from the agencies or audit committee members. Any questions? Okay. Thank you, Karis. Thank you, Karis. On page nine of the report, finding one states that the Department of Housing Stability must improve affordable housing oversight. Subfinding one, beginning on page 10, states the Department of Housing Stability is not ensuring Denver Housing Authority is complying with an agreement to build affordable housing. Yes, please, thank you. Uh, the Denver Housing Authority delivers for Denver program, known as D3, is a 20-year intergovernmental agreement between the Housing Authority and the City of Denver. The agreement was proposed in 2018 by the then Office of Economic Development to transfer about $105 million from the city to develop affordable housing and purchase land for future housing for the lowest income individuals and those experiencing homelessness. The agreement was approved and took effect in 2019 with the agreement to end in 2038. The agreement is funded by the property tax portion of the affordable housing fund with permitted uses defined by city ordinance including investments in rental housing for households earning no more than 80% of the area median income and supportive housing for those experiencing homelessness. The agreement scope of work says Denver Housing Authority must develop, rehabilitate, and preserve at least 1,294 units within three developments by the end of 2024. All units must be affordable to tenant households earning no more than 80% of the area median income. Second, the Housing Authority will purchase properties and select partners to develop at least 1,200 units to serve individuals experiencing homelessness and very low to moderate income households. As shown with Table 2 on page 14 of the audit report, we found the Housing Authority reported 203 market rate units renting at prices above the 80% area median income. Later analysis showed 114 units, a little more than half, are rented at or below the 80% area median income. However, according, Denver, according to Denver Housing Authority, despite these units renting for lower than average Denver prices, these prices are not guaranteed because market conditions could result in rent increases. Further, the remaining units already exceed the area median income allowed by the agreement. Again shown with table two, we also found a related issue where fewer units are developed for low and moderate income individuals than required by the agreement's scope of work. We were told the differences are because of market shifts and financing needs and that the Denver Housing Authority and the Department of Housing Stability are discussing an amendment to address the change. In 2023, Denver Housing Authority reported developing 187 units that did not actually receive D3 funds. Denver Housing Authority said funds should be viewed as leverage for all buildings in the development project, regardless of whether funds were used for a specific building. But Department of Housing Stability leaders said the units are not considered part of those developed for the D3 program, 
because there are separate loan contracts. Regardless, we found inconsistent accounting for the housing units developed, and this illustrates a lack of clarity over the number and actual cost, as well as the city's return on investment. The D3 agreement, <coughs> excuse me, the D3 agreement allows the specific loans we reviewed, but the agreement otherwise does not permit the Denver Housing Authority to be eligible for other city housing resources for units in the development projects until the end of 2024. Despite this restriction, the Department of Housing Stability allocated about $78.5 million in private activity bonds to D3 projects. We explain in the report on page 15 that private activity bonds do not have cash value, but they authorize local governments and housing authorities to issue bonds for uses like affordable housing. Continuing on page 15 of the report, we explain the department, <coughs> pardon me, folks, and, that, and the housing authority are discussing an amendment to allow more time to develop the West Ridge project. However, when completed, 2023 reports from Denver Housing Authority show the project should provide only 143 units rather than the 290 units of new rental housing that is defined in the agreement scope of work. Changes to the number of units at each development project may occur. And after we drafted our report and provided the department with a copy, we received two modifications to the agreement. The most recent from 2021 lowers the total number of units from 290 to 164. Again, the reported project deliverables do not match the modified terms of the agreement. An additional proposed amendment is to align the D3 agreement with the understanding that 600 permanent supportive housing units will be developed for very low income individuals. We were told that while the agreement could be read as requiring 1,200 permanent supportive housing units, that is not the interpretation and understanding held by the department and the housing authority. Further, the D3 agreement limits the investment of funds by Denver Housing Authority to no more than 15% per city council district except District 3, which is capped at 5%. As of 2023, Districts 1, 3, 8, and 9 received more funds than allowed by the agreement. We learned of discussions to grant waivers, but the agreement allows the department's executive director to grant a waiver to any one city council district except District 3. As shown in Figure 3 on page 18 of the report, six city council districts received investments as required by the agreement but the investment in District 1 may be sold. If sold, proceeds must be reinvested into the D3 program and properties suitable for residential development must include at least 20% for those in their moderate income population. According to the agreement, Denver Housing Authority must provide quarterly and annual reports about the progress of construction, the purchase of real estate, and summaries of how the money spent supports the objectives of the agreement. For the agreement that began in 2019, we learned no reports were prepared until the end of 2022. In total, we, we received three quarterly reports. The agreement also requires annual reports to describe aspects like all services and assistance provided through the agreement, the progress of housing unit development, and information and the reason for properties purchased, as well as those evaluated but not approved. During our audit, we received no annual reports. Meanwhile, the city's Executive Order 8 says agencies are responsible for monitoring contracts and performance. But we learned the Department and Housing Authority meet informally and may speak about topics other than the D3 agreement. We reviewed the agendas and minutes for three meetings held in the first half of 2023 and eight meetings held in 2022. But with what we received, we could not assess who attended, what was discussed, or the decisions made regarding the D3 agreement. 
Without sufficient oversight to ensure the agreement's reporting requirements are met, the department is not complying with the terms of the agreement and information is not collected that is relevant for understanding the return on investment and an accurate accounting of the project's true cost. When proposed, the agreement was estimated to generate $105 million in city property taxes, and the agreement's scope of work includes a table showing the estimated amounts from 2019 to 2038, ranging from $7.3 to $8.8 million. Because the amounts allocated by city council exceed the estimates, we use the past amounts to forecast a projection that reflects the investment could range from the estimated $160 million to a projected $223 million, a difference of about $63 million. However, the agreement does not create a multi-year financial commitment for the city. The decision to allocate any money to the D3 program is made solely by the city council annually. Our review of the D3 intergovernmental agreement found the Department of Housing Stability has not ensured Denver Housing Authority is complying with the terms of the agreement. Despite changes like developing market rate units and higher than allowed investments in city council districts, no amendments were executed. Further, housing resources were not used to create and preserve housing for those with the greatest need. Despite these issues, the total investment in the D3 agreement may exceed the estimated amount, and there's a lack of clarity with the units to be delivered, whether amendments are necessary, and whether units are affordable for the people the agreement is intended to serve. Therefore, we make the following four recommendations. I will read all four recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Recommendation 1.1 on page 23 states the department should establish and document roles and responsibilities for monitoring compliance with the D3 program agreement and performance of Denver Housing Authority to ensure the agreement terms are fulfilled. The department agreed with the recommendation and said it had been implemented as of September 18th, 2023. Please see the auditor's addenda on page 59 of the report. Recommendation 1.2 on page 23 states the department should follow the process outlined in the city's executive order number eight and the D3 agreement for revising the scope of work or amending the agreement. Revisions should be made before changing the process or required deliverables in practice. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.3 on page 23 states the department should ensure Denver Housing Authority is providing reports as required by the agreement. The report should include at least the elements outlined in the contract and scope of work. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. And recommendation 1.4, also on page 23, states the department and Denver Housing Authority should document key discussion points and decisions for monthly meetings. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2023. I'd like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members. Jack? Well, <clears throat> I'm a little overwhelmed <clears throat> and not, and I'm overwhelmed by just this, the whole housing issue in the, in the city and county of Denver. Um, could, could someone kind of explain what the different layers are in terms of the housing problem? We have the homeless situation, you know, then it kind of borders on the kinds of things that you're doing. There's a tremendous amount of money that's got to be spent on this. And 
you know, for somebody who moved to Denver when the cost of housing was about 18% less than the U.S. average, I'm kind of overwhelmed by, you know, the, the entire environment. Can you kind of give us, can you kind of describe what I would call um, the underserved in terms of a few different layers of people and how many units we're talking about and then so that we could put this into perspective. Sure. Um, so I'm sorry to have, I mean, it's just. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, you, and, and part of what's going on is the whole thing is so overwhelming. Everybody's got a hard time with it. So. Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, question and for that opportunity to level set a bit more in addition to uh, Caris's context at the beginning of the affordable housing challenges that we face here in Denver. And Renee, I'll start and certainly would be, uh, would love to have your additional thoughts here too. Uh, so as you know, here in Denver, we face significant housing affordability challenges. We are not alone in this. This is a national crisis. Cities across the country are struggling with housing affordability. Uh, what we have seen in our city is that the costs of housing are rising more than uh, rising more than incomes, and incomes, particularly for those at lower uh, lower income levels, are not keeping up with those costs. And so, I think the one in three households in Denver experiencing housing cost burden means that those struggles to save for your child's college, to weather that sudden medical bill or other uh, shock to your financial situation really creates a housing stability challenges, uh, challenge for many of our residents. Uh, we do also know that while there are, um, well, homelessness is a complex issue, uh, the number one driver of the level of homelessness in a community is the affordability of housing. Uh, and so we know that that is the real systemic driver as we have folks in our community who really cannot afford to keep pace with those prices. And so as we look at those challenges from the perspective of the Department of Housing Stability, we work across a spectrum of need. Uh, so first is the work of our housing stability team. Uh, so this is a group of uh, team members and staff and community partners who really work to keep people in the homes that they're already in and help provide that platform of stable housing. So that includes things like rent and utility assistance, eviction legal defense, support if you're facing a foreclosure, uh, other options like rehabbing your home so you can continue to be in that space. Uh, yep. Yeah, could I break this down? Sure. It, it seems to me there are two kinds of people that you're talking about and you haven't talked about the other ones. There are those people who in effect own their own homes, <clears throat> might be underwater in those homes, but they're being, they're, things are tough. Mm -hmm. Then you have people who are in rental housing where the rents are going up faster than their incomes and you get into that piece of it. Then of course you have the, the actual homeless and then you have the question of where does the Denver Housing Authority fit into this whole thing? Because they seem to be, from what I've been hearing, you know, the major operational people to deal. And I don't know whether it's just purchased housing or whether 
It's just rental housing. Yep. And, and those kinds of people are under very different pressures, I would guess, from one another. Can you give us some perspective on that in terms of how many family, what percentage falls into those categories, just to get a feel for this whole thing? I'm sorry to have to ask this question. So, no, it's fine. I just want to make sure I'm understanding your question so that I can be responsive. Are you asking the proportion of households in Denver who are renters versus homeowners? Are you asking about the role of DHA in rental versus homeownership? Just want to make sure I'm understanding. Okay, when I look at renters and owners, <clears throat> there are two kinds. There are the, the renters and owners who've got lots of money and they don't apply for any of this, whether they're renting or they own or whatever it is. And then we're talking about people who really are under pressure, which is really, so how many are renters? How many are owners? How many are not served at all? Who are kind of living with other people, other family members who are, I'm sure there's some, the pressures are just all encompassing. And, yes. and yep. so that was the first thing. And then the second thing is, where does Denver Housing Authority fit into that? But those are really two very, very separate questions. Yep, so. Um, I, I hope I, your confusion is a little, because I'm, I'm confused too. I hope that my question is straightforward, and if not, please tell me how I can help a little more. Yeah, sure. Uh, I just, yeah, wanted to make sure I'm understanding what would be most helpful uh, it, for it, you. It's perfectly yeah. fair. Um, so generally, uh, overall in Denver, we're about 50-50 uh, renter households versus owner households. Uh, that one in three households experiencing housing cost burden is an average across renters and homeowners. We do have data on our public facing website that breaks down uh, the number of households in Denver by area median income level. Um, and so we'd be happy to provide that additional information as a follow up so that you all can dig into that data. Um, I don't have all of that in kind of my packet here of prep today, um, but we certainly do have those resources available on our website. So we're happy to circulate that uh, to the audit team and make sure you all have that additional context. Um, we do know that uh, housing cost burden rates are uh, greatest for those at the lowest income levels in our community. So um, for folks paying more than 30% of their income or more than 50% of their income, the vast majority of people at or below 30% area median income in our city are experiencing that phenomenon. Okay, so let's take that 30%. Roughly, what percentage of those people are renters versus homeowners? We have that data. I would need to follow up with you on it. We can send that to you after. If you want to send it to us, we I can see. forward okay. it. I see. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'm sorry to go on and on. but No, no, it's fine. I want to be as responsive as we can and also, uh, I think, prepared some slightly different information based on the uh, focus of today, but we're certainly happy to provide any, any data that we have as follow-up. So, do, does the department have any additional information they'd like to share with us regarding the four recommendations that we've just discussed? Yep, and so I would be happy to do that. I also want to acknowledge that we have Aaron Brown from Denver Housing. Oh, 
I'm so sorry. Um, Aaron Clark here from Denver Housing Authority. Um, and so Aaron, if you would like to speak to um, the question on the role of DHA in affordable housing. Yeah, please. Thank you. Um, so yes, Aaron Clark, I serve as the Chief Real Estate Investment Officer for the Denver Housing Authority. I've been in that role for the past year and a half. Um, and so that means that I oversee the Real Estate Development Department as part of the Housing Authority. Um, one quick thing framing-wise um, to, to your question as well is I think that a useful image or metaphor is that of a ladder. We often talk about the housing continuum of different levels of housing going from those who are completely unhoused to those who have, you know, mega mansions and things and, and kind of where making sure that we're providing opportunities um, for all types of housing across that continuum. Um, I like to talk about it as a ladder in terms of those who are kind of at the top. We look at different rungs. So people who are unhoused are not on a rung yet. How can we get them onto the rung of uh, the housing continuum, and then how do we look across that spectrum at areas where potentially there are rungs missing? So to your point, people are renting, um, but that's getting less and less affordable. They're not able, they're able to maybe make the rent, but not a down payment to go from renter to home ownership. So I think a lot of our work in affordable housing is how to fill in some of those missing gaps. Uh, because right now we have a lot of subsidized housing for those earning 60% of, of the area median income or below. Our market rates are more at about 120% of the area median income. So we have this giant chasm. <laughs> uh, we'll call it a missing middle, but it's a, it's a canyon in between 60% of AMI and 120% of AMI. So I think it's part of all the work that we all try to do to find programs, developments that are providing those additional opportunities um, so that people do have a chance to right-size for their own families um, as well. With respect to the housing authority, um, just want to note that we are a creature of the state, not of the city. Um, we are a political subdivision of the state. Um, housing authorities are created by federal law, started in 1937. The Denver Housing Authority has existed um, and been authorized to operate within the city and county of Denver since 1938. Um, and we have done so continuously since then. We, um, our board of, of commissioners though, is appointed by the mayor of the city and county of Denver, so that is the one direct relationship there, but otherwise for purposes of what we're talking about here, we serve as a partner to the city and county of Denver, to the Department of Housing Stability specifically, and are a contractor essentially um, under the D3 program because we do have the ability to issue bonds. That is what was done um, here. So would just note that we are, um, we are as the housing authority, we touch over 13,000 subsidized housing units across the city and county of Denver. So we are the largest affordable housing provider. With that being said, most of those units are actually public housing units. Um, so three to 4,000 federally subsidized through the Department of, of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. Public housing units, so fully subsidized by the federal government that we own and operate as a housing authority. In addition to that, we process a number of vouchers. Housing choice vouchers used to be known as Section 8. Um, so that's 
the types of vouchers that tenants can have to go to the private market to help subsidize so that they're paying a portion of the market rent and the balance um, that's above what they're able to pay based on their income level is subsidized with those vouchers. We also have project-based vouchers, so putting those into particular developments to buy down the cost of units for individuals. So that's really most of what's done. And then the real estate side is that we are an in-house affordable housing developer as well. So that is how we've been brought in as a partner for the D3 program to actually um, develop housing and we're developing, we've actually been redeveloping, so demolishing in phases former obsolete public housing to then increase density um, and increase income levels. We no longer build to concentrate poverty to warehouse people to have just uh, large housing projects. We are really in the community business, in the neighborhood revitalization business, and so we both uh, self-develop higher density housing, primarily around transit, um, to really think through the overall costs that it takes to not just have a house, but um, to get to work, to get your kids to school. Um, and then we also, um, the other side of the D3 program is actually purchasing properties to then work with third party developers to be able to build or rehab properties for permanent supportive housing. So that is for those at the very low income levels with some wraparound services. So it's really transitional housing for those coming out of homelessness. So again, getting people onto that ladder, that first rung, and then helping them move up a step or two beyond that. So hopefully that helps with some additional context. I think that's a good description of the complex environment that we're dealing with. I'd like to get back to the audit report, though. If, uh, th and thank you for those comments. That's valuable. Florine, you have a Can I ask one more kind of background question? Sure. Okay. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that the reason that the acquisition funds are concentrated where they are and there aren't, uh, <coughs> they aren't in District 11 and 4 specifically is because the people living there are probably above the median income. However, in, to your point, uh, to your last point about kind of taking a holistic approach to housing and, and where people live vis-a-vis -vis jobs, wouldn't it make sense to concentrate some funds in 11 being close to DIA and, or within DIA um, area and for the tech center area where there, there would be jobs that would be minimum wage or you know, of the lower, would hugely reduce transportation costs. Mm -hmm. Is that is that part of any objective? <laughs> it absolutely is, and there, um, I think there were, so there are two halves of the program, so we need to speak to that specifically. So I think we're talking about the permanent supportive housing side, the land acquisition side uh -huh. of the program, correct? Right. Um, so with that being said, and again, I'm speaking from, uh, most of these acquisitions occurred before before my tenure at the Housing Authority. So I'm just speaking to what I know to be true in the market and, and what I've understood in, in talking to folks that were involved in those particular uh, decisions. But acquisitions are still going on, aren't they? Um, some, we actually are close to tapped out on those funds. We've already bought enough properties mm. just in the first few years of this program to be able to meet the 1,200 unit 
target, and that's something I wanted to comment on that was brought up in the audit, is that we are planning to continue to the 1,200 permanent supportive housing unit target with 600 of those being for very low income households, being those earning between zero and 30% of AMI. We are already, um, we have already exceeded that very low income target. We have 649 units already developed um, or in process of being developed to meet that very low income level, 663 total already done, and we have another four properties where we can easily meet the remaining 500 plus units to get to that 1,200 unit target. So wanna make sure that that factually is, mm -hmm. is um, reflected here. Um, in terms of the distribution, geographic distribution, um, a lot of that is also market driven. It's how far can this money go to be able to develop, so sometimes, it's, there are zoning issues, there, the land prices in those areas that you're speaking to, the land prices are also higher. Mm -hmm. So the requirement was to have investments in a minimum of six council districts, that has been met. Um, so while we do wanna see more in other areas, it's also what was the opportunity at the time to be able to build these types of units without having a lot of extra hurdles to be able to deliver it in the timeframes provided by these deadlines because overall affordable housing, if you pay too much for the land up front, you cannot have it be affordable at the back end and permanent supportive housing needs the deepest subsidies, so we have to come in with lower land costs to start. Okay. Comments on the recommendation? Uh, so first, thank you for the opportunity to take some space in this, uh, in this time to just provide some of these critical background pieces on affordable housing. I think with regard to the recommendations, uh, one thing that I would highlight is that we have a, uh, dedicated a staff member to uh, really focusing in on this D3 agreement on the Department of Housing Stability side, recognizing things like ensuring those reporting requirements, ensuring those meeting minutes and those pieces and the overall compliance. So we have, that's where you see that September date that we have assigned a dedicated staff person. Um, and Renee would love for you to, to dig in further. Certainly, we are very, I mean, we, again, we appreciated the attention that was paid to this because I think it allowed us an opportunity to think proactively about what we could do to better improve our, our communication, improve our reporting, the things that oh, I think we had had an idea of an amendment in, in mind for, for quite some time, uh, but given the external market factors, as you mentioned, going on between COVID, I would also point out there's been significant staffing changes between both of our of our divisions. Um, that that it had not had not had not reached the point of our attention yet. We we kind of knew we wanted to get there, and so your your um, focus on this area for us has kind of I think really spurred some action, including the um, the addition of a staff member. Since yeah, well, it, it's an existing staff member who was already working on extensively on D on DHA properties who has now taken on the responsibility for overseeing the D3 agreement and along the way improving our processes for um, meetings, uh, meeting minutes, uh, thinking about the amendment, thinking about the waiver for the, the neighborhoods. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, and I will just say we're we are really proud of and excited about the fact that this actually, that Denver had the foresight to create this type of tool uh, five year, we're at about the five year anniversary now uh, because I do think it's unique and I think it, that is also part of the context in which we were, uh, we were uh, working here. Of, this is something completely new. It took us uh, a significant amount of time to just kind of determine, um, to go back to the reporting to, to determine what the actual temp, the best template would be to use and to co uh, coordinate between our different um, agencies who's the best person to, to update those. And then 
continuing involvement of the marketplace, including um, I think, uh, D3 funds have recently become involved in one of the um, uh, hotel acquisitions as well. So as, those, as all of those pieces have changed, and we, this resource has been ex exceedingly helpful, um, and I think we're excited about moving it forward and, and to make sure that um, we implement some of, many of the recommendations to make the program even stronger. I think just lastly on that, just to emphasize, though we uh, recognize and are working on these process pieces and bringing, uh, uh, bringing forward the items we've committed to in our, in our responses, I think it's also really important to acknowledge that this program will deliver thousands of units that we need in our city. Uh, and as we address really complex challenges, it is a really critical tool. And so just want to make sure that we're also highlighting the positive impacts of this work in bringing real homes to people who need them. I, I don't question the challenge in front of you at all. Um, but how do, you, how do you report over 200 units that are at market as affordable housing? I, I, I mean, by I, definition, they're, they're not affordable if they're at market. Yes, uh, but they are a part of a, a of a larger development where there are goals to have mixed to to have to serve a range of of incomes and um, this, these these were units in Sun Valley, mm -hmm. as I believe, and so the the Sun Valley redevelopment does have some some specific goals as far as um, um, serving a broader range and making sure that we have mixed incomes that are served in that um, in that neighborhood um, and. Um, I think there was just a again, as, as the transitions, there might have been some confusion as, as we're putting in together new templates and reports. Um, do, does this count? Because it, it is a part of the larger development. It, is, it was, could not have come about without the leveraged funds from the surrounding um, developments that were occurring in the Sun Valley neighborhood. And I'll let, I'll let uh, Aaron speak further to that. Thank you, yeah, if I can just, so the vast majority of the units on the DHA direct side of the D3 program are, being developed in the Sun Valley neighborhood. Sun Valley is um, about 30 acres and DHA received in 2016 a $30 million grant from HUD to do this neighborhood revitalization. So there are also obligations with that to include a mix of incomes across the various, all of affordable housing has very complex layering of financing sources. So. The D3 funds are layered on top of federal programs, the requirements from HUD choice neighborhood implementation, all these different things. What we've done in Sun Valley is a number of the individual buildings have primarily income restricted affordable housing, but also unrestricted housing that we have called market rate. With that being said, as we noted, the true market rate in Denver is about 120% of the area median income. So it's somewhat of a misnomer when we say market units. Um, what we do have here, acknowledge, are unrestricted units, so they're not income restricted. With that being said, given what the neighborhood is and the fact that it is mixed with primarily affordable housing, those have been rented at and below 80% of AMI largely. Um, so that is something that actually I do want to point out is a factual, there's a statement here that says that we're, it points out that what we've noted as those that are unrestricted and, and there is a note in the side that says that we are renting those at above 80% of AMI and that was concerning because it is pointing to the 
data that we provided that is saying that though these are renting currently at or below 80% of AMI, and so it felt um, like it could lead to some confusion um, because the majority of them are not being rented above the 80%. Uh, so, so may I? Yes, please. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, from information we received, um, in a point of clarity, uh, we have three reports that say 203 units. Latest information says 197, so I'm not going to get lost in the six here, okay? <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, I'm not going to run them either. <laughs> of the 197 units, 114 rent at 80% uh, or less AMI. Are those protected by a covenant? They are not, and that's not what I'm arguing. The statement is we found the authority reported 203 market rate units renting at prices above the 80% area median income allowed. That makes it sound like we've reported all 203 are renting above 80% instead of acknowledging the 114 that are renting at or below. We do acknowledge that about half of them are renting at 80% or less AMI. Those are not secured by a covenant, so rents may increase, correct? The other half are already, when developed, I'm not sure what stage they're in, will rent at above 80% AMI. I'm not gonna get into what Denver's AMI average rent is. It exceeds the amount that is allowed by the agreement, okay. period. I'm, and I'm not disputing that, and that statement is in the text. There's a call out, though, that is saying that everything is renting, above 80%. That's where my concern lies, is that that nuance that's there, rather than talking about them being unrestricted, it's saying that we are actively renting them at a higher level Do than Do you realize though are. that if, 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 if none of them exceeded 80%, this would be a moot point? The agreement is for those that earn low to moderate income, not Again, to exceed 80%. I'm not arguing that. Good. I'm really not. Good. So we're not fighting. Um, this is just me saying that the statement is inaccurate because it's not talking about the income restriction. It's talking about where we're actively renting. And I just want to make sure that that is clear because especially as a call out, some well, people might only read that and not see the rest of it. That's, 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 that's fair, but your say. reports list 203 units at market. There's no additional context here. We, had, we did our own due diligence, and then we, we note that in the report. So we're being very accurate and, and more than fair. Um, there are units that are renting above the 80% area median income, and that's not allowed by the agreement. Okay. I guess that's the uh, definition of, of renting, um, because we're not renting them there. They could go above, technically speaking. Um, but I think what we'll I, note your disagreement, and you. um, we're going to have to move on. Yep. You know, I do think it's a complex uh, field that you're in. I think the agreement between the department and DHA is complex, to say the least, and the way it's being monitored um, is poor, in my opinion, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement here because ultimately we're trying to serve a population that has historically been underserved. Let's continue. Thank you. I will now continue by presenting the second subfinding of finding one. Subfinding two, beginning on page 24, states that the Department of Housing Stability's property inspections and compliance reviews may not effectively and consistently identify issues. 
To better understand the conditions of affordable housing in Denver, we selected a random sample of 20 affordable housing projects funded by the Department of Housing Stability. And we conducted on-site observations of the building's exterior and interior public spaces. We also observed one D3-funded project. Federal guidelines as well as local ordinance establish housing quality standards and the responsibilities of property owners and residents. <coughs> While the department is not responsible for enforcing local housing code, Denver's environmental health rules and regulations set minimum standards. For example, there are seasonal requirements for every window to have a working screen and doors should be secure. Affordable housing must meet or exceed the 13 housing quality elements outlined by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development including sanitary facilities, security, electricity, and a structure free of serious defects. Using the same federal guidelines and the local housing code, we found issues at 14 of the 21 affordable housing projects we observed. The issues range in severity and include unsecured doors, disabled fire doors, exposed electrical wires, and an inoperable elevator. We reviewed the department's most recent housing quality inspection forms for 235 units across the same 20 projects and all units were shown to have passed their most recent inspections, including the properties where we found issues. Federal guidelines, again from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, establish the frequency and the number of units to inspect. The Department of Housing Stability follows these guidelines, but the guidelines do not prohibit more frequent inspections. Further, the Department of Housing Stability does not conduct inspections on some affordable housing projects that receive taxpayer funding, and this includes units funded through the D3 program that I previously discussed. Ahead of formal inspections, residents must receive notice at least 24 hours prior to the inspection of their housing unit, and property managers must receive notice at least 14 days prior to the general inspection. The Department of Housing Stability provides two to four weeks notice, but the department may also conduct observations of public areas as we did. As discussed on page 29, despite our requests, property managers did not receive notification of our planned on-site observations, and we found conditions that would likely result in properties failing inspections. For example, we saw doors leading into buildings that were unlocked or propped open, broken windows or missing screens, and large cracks and other damaged exterior walls. Therefore, the extended lead time between department notifications and inspections may allow property managers to address previously ignored issues, and people living in affordable housing may be subject to health and safety risks if buildings are not consistently maintained. Annually, the Department of Housing Stability requires property managers to provide information about affordable housing, including the number of residents in the units and their incomes. Staff evaluate the information submitted by property managers to verify that resident incomes do not exceed restrictions and property managers are not overcharging residents. As of July 2023, the department managers said they are developing procedures for on-site and virtual audits and creating training for landlords and property managers. When these audits occur, managers say they plan to verify that the information submitted by property managers matches the documentation reviewed by department staff. If the department is not verifying that people meet income eligibility requirements, affordable housing units may not be available for people who need them. We learned that while the department has tripled in size since it was created, staffing shortages have created challenges in accomplishing the work of providing affordable housing. During the course of the audit, we learned the department's new contracting strategies were dependent on staff capacity and some staff responsibilities shifted to even out workloads. We later learned areas within the asset management compliance team were short-staffed, 
and an additional person is being considered to help with increased number of inspections resulting from the July 2022 expansion of the affordability ordinance. We asked staff whether the department had conducted a more recent workforce analysis to identify resources such as staffing needs to accomplish its goals. After we completed our field work, managers then told us they monitor staffing needs on an ongoing basis, but they did not provide documentation to support that any analysis was completed. Without an understanding of the number of staff needed to conduct inspections and ensure compliance with income eligibility, the department may not have the resources needed to ensure property managers comply with requirements and residents meet eligibility requirements. Therefore, we make the following five recommendations. I will read all five recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Recommendation 1.5 on page 32 states the department should conduct and document a formal needs assessment to determine how to ensure affordable units and buildings are maintained properly and hazards are quickly identified and corrected. The assessment should include a review of the frequency inspections should occur and the length of time allotted between inspection notification and inspections. The department disagreed with the recommendation. Please see the auditor's addenda on page 59 of the report. Recommendation 1.6 on page 32 states the department should conduct a formal staffing or workforce analysis to determine existing staffing levels and needs to meet department objectives and goals, particularly related to inspections and compliance. Department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.7 on page 32 states the department should revise existing policies and procedures for conducting inspections. Revision should include the frequency for inspections and the time required to notify property managers of upcoming inspections. The department disagreed with the recommendation. Please see page 59 of the report for an auditor's agenda. Recommendation 1.8 on page 32 states the department should identify a responsible party for conducting inspections of all audits, all units funded by the city. If contractors will, will be responsible for conducting inspections, the department should ensure inspections are conducted consistent with city standards and that the contractor is providing documentation to allow the department to monitor contractor conducted inspections. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.9 on page 33 states the department should develop and document policies and procedures for conducting reviews of income verification. These policies and procedures should include responsible parties, the frequency of reviews, and how reviews will be documented. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of January 31st, 2024. I'd like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members. Comments from the department? Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to comment. And thank you again for your for um, the time that you spent with our asset management compliance team, with our inspectors, and out in the field evaluating some of the properties that um, are part of our portfolio. Um, I, I, as you noted, we've agreed with a number of, of the recommendations, and this is an area where we also um, stated some disagreement, particularly related to the notification timelines that were that were spelled out there. Um, I would note that we did not, um, to your point, that we did not notify uh, property managers about your inspections. It, it was because it, it, fell, it fell underneath, um, below the 14-day timeline that we typically provide to our departments according to HUD guidelines. HUD guidelines. Um, 
I will provide the additional con context that this asset management and compliance team, to your to your point, that our um, you know host has grown extensively over the last number of months, and I would point out the asset management and compliance team is one as an area in particular where we have grown significantly. At the time at which the D3 agreement came into place five years ago, and even as recently as three years ago, we had one asset manager and um, one compliance, one person working on compliance. We have since uh, greatly expanded that team, including uh, Maureen Meyer-Morley, who, um, who is now our Director of Asset Management and Compliance. We have added a number of staff who all come to this, the compliance or asset management space with a, uh, with a number of years of experience in the private marker, market in the, and, and in the public sector. And so we, we've really, I'm very proud of the way in which we've grown the team and continue to grow our policies and procedures to ensure we are providing um, the best um, oversight and, uh, and, and uh, policies as we uh, look at our portfolio of affordable units. Um, we do currently have two inspectors on our asset management compliance team who bring a wealth of experience. They, they can come into the work after having served a number of years as, as maintenance uh, uh, leads on affordable properties. So they are very familiar with the environment in which, um, the, in which we are trying to provide the um, oversight and uh, feedback. And I will just clarify that I think we approach our, our Part of our, as part of our mission of keeping um, dendrites healthy, housed, and collect, connected, um, we look at um, our asset management compliance role as one of being collaborators and wanting to really, in terms the long-term stability and success of the properties that we that we are part, or we're um, happy to partner with. Um, we are, our inspectors typically go out into the field. Uh, we provide a significant amount of notice uh, to be compliant with HUD requirements um, and to also be cognizant of the fact that these, as, as you've noted, these affordable housing projects have a variety of funding sources that all have, that all have their own distinct um, inspection requirements. And we are trying to work within the guidelines of HUD, being cognizant of the other inspection um, requirements that, are, that might be out there from other funding sources, from, from federal sources, from vouchers, from state sources, um, and trying to be respectful of the, of the tenants that are there as well. But ultimately, we are, we are wanting the success of these properties and this, this, these, these uh, properties that are homes for a number of our residents. And so we work very extensively and collaboratively with, um, with our property partners owner and owners um, to provide the not notification that we're coming to make sure to give feedback along the way. I think, as you noted, that you looked at housing quality inspection reports that many had passed, but many of those had extensive background in which our inspectors, our compliance team was working over a lengthier period of time to work with um, the staff on site, with the, with the maintenance men, to uh, get them toward a place where they could a pass where, where they would pass the HQS inspection. These are all point in, uh, point in time, uh, you know, uh, snapshots of what's happening at the property at that time. But we are really looking for the long-term um, overall improvement and um, stability of the site uh, with our partners to make sure that they are part of our long-term portfolio and can continue to provide quality housing for um, the residents that we that are being served there. Um, so I can. Um, I think um, I, I, don't, I would want to allow our um, asset, director of asset management compliance to speak to um, to, to any other um, highlights there. But I think we're. It's. I would just summarize in that we are an apartment that has significantly grown. We bring a significant amount of experience, um, and we are kind of building out our processes to ensure that these uh, properties which we are um, overseeing 
our, our long-term assets in our portfolio and continue to provide safe and healthy housing for our residents. Thanks, Renee. I'm Maureen Ryer Morley, and I'm the Director of the Asset Management and Compliance. And in our team, we probably have over 100 years of experience in property management and being on the property side. So we try to work collaboratively with those projects and make sure that there's a success. But like um, Renee said, it's a point in time. We send the notice, we let them know, and when we're there and we see things, then we work with them to bring it into cure. About 60% of our inspections pass on the first inspection and about 40 of them fail. And that's where we step in and we are collaboratively supporting them to bring that into compliance. And, and in the whole fix of the things, that they fix anything that's at the property that isn't working right. And that's the whole purpose. But so many of these properties are subject to other inspections that like the REAC or the, the LIHTC tax credit inspection or the state home inspection. Um, the REAC can be called if it's not a project section eight, but their, their lender wants them to have a REAC and that's a much higher level inspection. So when we're sending these notices out and we're inspecting these properties annually, that's exceeding the HUD expectation of three years and we're doing it every year. But when we send those notices out, those residents are being impacted again and again and again. And that's why we do stick to the 14 days or longer. So those residents have some breathing time to get their homes ready to be intruded. And then we go in and, and we peek in their closets and we peek in their bathroom and we look at all those things. And that's why we don't do the less than 14 days and we try to respect our residents and how they're impacted and then support the teams to bring those units into compliance. Thank you. Um, can you help me understand how we looked at 235 of your inspection reports that had no exceptions to them, and then when we went out, we looked at 21 of the same properties and found 14 of them that we felt had inspection uh, deficiencies. You were 100% clear. We had two-thirds you know, that were not clear. The difference is that what he's, ex what he's expressing they looked at were unit inspections. Those individual units, there were 235 that passed and that had been previously inspected. What he looked at was the exterior and the common space. And in those inspections, those might have failed or had items of issue that they needed to correct. So there's a difference of exterior inspection and interior apartment inspections. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your inspections do look at the exterior as well. They do, but when you were looking at the individual units of the each unit one, those are 235 apartments, that not projects. Rate, that also rate the exterior. Yes. Which is what we saw. So, so both are getting rated. The, the difference here is uh, we, we did not look at, 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 at resident properties, um, didn't ask to, didn't want to, uh, for, the, for exactly that reason. Uh, and that's not what our recommendation is, is suggesting. Um, quite honestly, I, I, I was impressed by w the work that you all do. What we're noticing is, is a difference in, um, we didn't see any issues identified on the inspections provided by us. I understand they're individual units, but they also address the exterior of the building and public spaces. And so when we did see those things, um, I can't explain what the, not disconnect, but what happens there what I can say is that we viewed very different situations. Um, 
I understand the desire to uh, develop relationships with property managers. Um, quite honestly, uh, I, 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 I think the focus is, but should remain on the residents. And so um, we're just simply identifying issues that we saw that were not identified in your inspections. So we recommended uh, a consideration to um, uh, observations of exterior spaces. You know, in our role, we can't uh, we can make recommendations. We can't tell you how to implement something. Um, so simply observing the exterior of properties um, would identify the issues that we did. We don't want to, to interfere uh, uh, with residents, and we're not trying to interfere with, with HUD guidelines because we appreciate those. Uh, however, you do note that um, you're exceeding HUD guidelines, to your credit, right? So the, there's nothing that, that precludes uh, an observation of an exterior of a building. Um, and that's one of the things that we're recommending um, that you disagreed with. The other component being that um, you do are required a minimum of 14 days. And we were just told that, that resident or property managers receive two to four weeks notice. So um, I, maybe it's why I'm an auditor, but I, I, I'm not fundamentally trustworthy of every uh, opposing partner, right? You know, I, I can't assume that the property managers are always going to be uh, looking out for the property residents' best interests. So we're identifying risk, and we, we did observe issues that indicate risk is there. And so we're on the margins here. Um, so I, I, you know, I just don't want us to get too lost in um, whether it's, it's resident units uh, or uh, frequency. We're just on the margins, and we're identifying that we saw things that, that you all didn't report. That's all. Okay. I would Any also other questions I, from the committee? Let's Could continue. I make one last comment? I'd like to continue. We're okay. on a time frame here, so thank you. Let's continue. Thank you. Uh, I will now present uh, the third subfinding of uh, finding one. Uh, subfinding three, beginning on page 33, states the Department of Housing Stability, <coughs> excuse me, is not enforcing compliance with wage laws. Denver Labor, which is a separate division of the Auditor's Office, is responsible for enforcing wage laws in the city and county of Denver. Wage theft occurs when employers do not pay workers the wages they are legally entitled to receive. Figure six on page 34 of the report illustrates the wage theft laws that Denver Labor enforces and collects penalties on from employers that, from employers that pay people less than the, leg, the legal wage. These laws include the Federal Davis-Bacon Act, Denver's prevailing wage ordinance, and the citywide minimum wage. During the audit, departments, Department of Housing Stability housing stability managers told us about a possible wage dispute related to a current development project. We confirmed with Denver Labor about the possible dispute, who said the developer contacted them in January of 2023. Denver Labor also said that they should have been contacted when the project application was submitted. The contract was signed in December of 2022. The department cited a difference of interpretation from Denver Labor when evaluating different types of housing construction. The department said that they were following a 2001 legal opinion from the city's attorney's office related to, the, related to the applicability of the prevailing wage ordinance. The ordinance has since been revised several times. Furthermore, the department said that aside from one tenured staff member, they were not aware of a 2018 memorandum of understanding between the then Office of Economic Development, which became the Department of Housing Stability, and Denver Labor, even though an existing department staff member is named as the point of contact in the agreement. The agreement documented a collaborative process between the departments to ensure contractors to comply with wage laws, and contracts contained the legal required language. As of May 2023, Denver Labor was working with the department to update the 2018 Memorandum of Understanding. However, as of August, 
Denver, later, Denver, Denver Labor said it had no further substantive conversations with the department about updating the agreement. Finally, we found that the department's contracting procedures did not include guidance for when staff should include Denver Labor in the review process. The procedures only indicate staff to check yes or no in the contracting system. Beginning on page 35 of the report, we describe our efforts to better understand if department staff were submitting contracts to Denver Labor for review. We received 108 contracts with dates ranging from November 1998 to May 2023. Of the 108 contracts, we randomly selected 28 for review and found that only one contract was sent to Denver Labor for review. 96% of the contracts we reviewed could have been subject to wage laws and not have been detected, thus opening up the city, to, up to city, thus opening up the city up to several risks, such as loss of federal funding. As shown on page 36 of the report, the department said that 40,000 homeowners and 87,000 renters in Denver earn less than 80% of the area immediate income. The department has also said that housing prices in Denver have nearly doubled in 2019, while incomes did not rise as, qu rise as quickly. This put pressure on Denver households to afford critical rent and mortgage payments. To combat this issue, the department has set goals of investing money into affordable housing and reducing the housing cost burden of low and moderate income households by 2026. As mentioned, a household is considered cost burdened when residents are paying more than 30% of their income on housing costs, such as mortgage or rent. To assess the impact of people not making at least minimum wage endeavor, we analyzed Denver's residents spending on rent for people earning minimum wage from 2019 through 2023. We found that the cost burden was more than double the 30% threshold for each year for those individuals. Figure seven on page 37 of the report shows the importance of the department's need to ensure contractors comply with wage laws and to pay the appropriate wages to workers so it can reduce the percentage of cost burden residents in the city and county endeavor, including for those workers developing and constructing affordable housing themselves. By not, enforcing, not, by not ensuring enforcement of prevailing wages on federally funded contracts or complying with the requirements, the, the Department of Housing Stability runs the risk of losing future federal funding. In addition, to, in addition to these potential losses of critical funds, the department also runs the risk of not being able to meet its goals of affordable housing development and preservation, and for increasing homeownership among low and moderate income households. Therefore, we make the following two recommendations. I will read both recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Recommendation 1.10 on page 37 states that the department should work with Denver Labor and the city's attorney's office to ensure compliance with federal and local wage laws. The department agreed with this recommendation, saying it had been implemented June 28, 2023. Please see the auditor's addenda on page 59 of the report. Recommendation 1.11 on page 37 states the department should revise all contract-related policies and procedures to include guidance for staff on when to include prevailing wage review on contracts and how that review should be documented. These revisions should include a process for, of reviewing contract information to ensure contracts are being flagged for prevailing wage review as outlined in policies and procedures. The department agreed with this recommendation <laughs> with the implementation date of January 31st, 2024. Thank you. I would like to open up the floor for questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members. Jennifer, any comments? Um, I think, thank you for, for that overview. Certainly we have been working on and will continue to work on an update to our understanding with CAO as well as engaging with Denver Labor. Uh, but Renee, any further specifics you'd wanna add? I, uh, no, I, I'd specifically point to the memo that you had pointed out that we are working to get to get that updated because I think that is a clear, uh, we, had, we had some informal um, updates to that the um, 
updates to the ordinance, we're still in alignment, but we will actually try to formalize that. And I think that's something, the June date that's in, as far as our implementation is when we kicked off those, those discussions with the CAO. Um, and so I think this is an area in which um, there is, um, and as in all of these areas, there's room for improvement and we appreciate the recommendations to um, improve overall coordination to ensure um, uh, the co overall compliance. And we certainly see the link uh, of the work that we do in, in terms of cost burden and the uh, residents of Denver who are working on these types of projects um, that um, would need to be ensured they are, um, we are, that the federal and local wage laws are, are followed. So we will, I, I look forward to the uh, improved coordination with the labor office. office. Any questions from the committee? Okay. You wanna continue? Thank you. I will now present the fourth sub-finding of finding one. Sub-finding four, beginning on page 38, states that the Department of Housing Stability does not have control to, to ensure data reliability and did not follow the city's rules when planning a system integration. The primary information system used by the department is Salesforce. Figure eight on page 38 of the report shows the flow of data into and out of Salesforce. As seen, information is entered by both the department and external users, such as property managers. This information is vast and could include things like funding information, number and size of units in the development, and non-compliance issues. In addition to internal uses, information from the Salesforce populates a publicly facing dashboard that informs the public on the department's affordable housing operations and results. Beginning in January 2023, the department worked with a consultant to further build out Salesforce and to cater the department's specific needs. Before the enhancements, staff members used multiple systems to locate information related to different stages of affordable housing projects. After these enhancements, the department said it should be able to use Salesforce as the central platform. When the, when the department planned for the integration of Salesforce and Workday, the city's financial system of record, it did not follow the city's rules. While managers told us that the told us that the integration of the, two, of the two systems was an idea that was an aspirational and not, not determinative, we found that the scope of work between the department and the hire consultant included plans to integrate the two systems. Further, weekly status updates between the consultant contained updates on the plan to integrate the two systems until around May 2023, when it was determined that the integration would not be feasible in the time frame. City Fiscal Accountability Rule 1.2 states that subsidiary systems shall not interface with a city system of record, such as Workday, without the approval of the city's controller's office. We followed up with the city controller who said the department should have included the controller's office earlier in the process and before a contract was signed. If the department decides to move forward with the integration again and does not discuss the integration with the controller's office, it would not be compliant with the city's rules designed to protect data integrity and validity. Additionally, we found that Salesforce data was not always reliable and some staff were unsure on how to access certain information for us. Managers told us that they had to review physical files from Salesforce against Salesforce data because the data appeared to be questionable and there was conflicting information. Staff were also unsure why certain Salesforce reports were generating inaccurate information or pulling information, not pulling infor correct information from Salesforce correctly. Staff could not also not identify or explain certain data contained in these reports. Additionally, department staff user access permissions for Salesforce are not regularly reviewed. Leading practices suggest the importance of using quality data from reliable sources. By implementing control activities through policies and procedures, the department should be more prepared to monitor progress towards achieving its objectives and goals. While the department does have a lot of procedural documents for entering information into Salesforce, it does not have any for reviewing data inside Salesforce for accuracy and reliability. If the department does not have adequate controls over its data and does, and does not understand how to pull data from the systems 
into reports, the information used internally and on publicly facing dashboards may be inaccurate and unreliable. If the department cannot accurately report how it's spending money on affordable housing, Denver residents cannot have assurance that taxpayer money is being used efficiently and effectively to fund and preserve affordable housing. Therefore, we make the following five recommendations. I'll read all five recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. <coughs> Recommendation 1.12 on page 41 states the department must follow fiscal accountability rule 1.2 before integrating any subsidiary systems like Salesforce and the, with the city system of record workday. The department agreed with this recommendation and said it had been implemented on May 30th, 2023. Please see the auditors and data on page 59 of the report. Recommendation 1.13 on page 41 states that the department should revise all user access permissions policies and policies and procedures to include a process and frequency for conducting regular user access reviews. These revisions should include how and where these reviews are documented. The department agreed with this recommendation with the implement implementation date of January 31st, 2024. Recommendation 1.14 on page 42 states the department should develop policies and procedures for reviewing data held within its information systems to ensure data, particularly data used for program monitoring and data that is publicly available, is accurate and reliable. The department agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.15 on page 42 states the department should fix existing data and monitor data moving forward, particularly in Salesforce, to ensure its accuracy and reliability. The department agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of March 31st, 2024. Recommendation 1.16 on page 42 states the department should develop instructions for generating reports from its information systems. The department agreed with this recommendation and said it had been implemented November 2nd, 2023. Please see the auditor's addenda on page 59 of the report. I would like to open up the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members. Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, so yes, appreciate the attention to our data systems infrastructure and reporting infrastructure as part of this audit. I will first say that Yes, we have policies and procedures to build out and further refine around some of these pieces. So I have agreed, agreed with the recommendations. I think one thing I will point out that we have done already is that we do have a data team within host um, and we have directed staff to ensure that for major reports, things of this significance that we are always running those things through our dedicated data team. Um, and we also are continuing to remind staff of the availability of that team to support them, to provide technical assistance. Um, but the data team is responsible for all public facing reports and has kind of more of those internal controls in place. And we will continue to build those things out. I do want to acknowledge that uh, with regard to fiscal accountability rule 1.2 and the proposed systems integration, uh, I will uh, note that the fiscal accountability rule does not speak to, it is silent on the topic of contracting, and I think this audit has helped to bring forward further clarification of expectations from agencies in terms of when the controller's office is engaged. Uh, I do want to uh, just very clearly state, however, that the, ru the rule states that no integration should happen without the authorization of the controller's office. And when we realized and un understood that we had concerns there that we needed to navigate, we pa paused that work. And so we uh, do not feel that we were out of compliance with fiscal accountability rule 1.2. I know that's an area where we have agreed to disagree. Um, and we will not because we will not move forward with that plan unless we have, have buy-in and, and a clear plan of action in coordination with the controller's office. Okay. Questions from the committee? Should we continue? Thank you. And now Hannah will present finding two. 
Thank you, Jackson. Finding two, beginning on page 43 of the report, states the parts of the Department of Housing Stability's prioritization policy we reviewed were well designed to minimize lawsuits and displacement. We found the Department of Housing Stability appropriately planned its prioritization policy by evaluating legal issues and identifying a population in need. In September 2021, department managers identified a need to help people at risk of being displaced from the city and county of Denver. The policy was adopted in September 2022 after being passed by the city council and will take effect July 1, 2024. As shown on page 44 of the report, the target population identified by department managers for the policy includes displaced households, and this includes any residents who have been displaced from Denver since 2000 or who have a family member displaced from Denver between 1939 and 2000. It also includes households vulnerable to displacement, individuals with generational ties to the city and county of Denver, households facing foreclosure or evictions, and renters being forced out of their homes due to factors outside of their control. The policy will ensure at least 30% of new and newly preserved income-restricted affordable housing are available to people who meet the requirements. Units set aside for the prioritization program are required to be offered to eligible households first for at least 14 business days before they can be marketed to other applicants that do not meet the requirements of the prioritization program. After eligible people apply, property managers will use a point scoring system that is currently still being developed by the department to determine their priority for affordable housing and ultimately who will be offered the unit. When planning this audit, we identify that the Department of Housing Stability's prioritization policy could create inequities for people in Denver by offering priority access to certain people over others. We were also concerned the policy could violate the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's Fair Housing Act, which protects people from discrimination when renting or buying a home or taking part in any housing-related activities. For example, both New York City and San Francisco have encountered legal challenges because their policies were believed to reinforce neighborhood segregation. A Columbia Law Review article discusses approaches cities can implement to avoid liability and non-compliance with the Federal Fair Housing Act. We found Denver's prioritization policy to be in line with the combination of these approaches, specifically expanding geographic scope of preference areas and using residency as a plus factor. The Columbia Law Review article recommends expanding the geographic scope in its policy to avoid a neighborhood-based approach to include more racially diverse populations. We found that New York City's and San Francisco's policies give people preferred access to affordable housing units in the neighborhood that they currently live in. For example, a person living in Manhattan would receive preference over someone living in Queens for an affordable housing unit in Manhattan. Denver's policy, however, applies citywide, meaning anyone who meets the income eligibility criteria can apply for priority housing in any part of the city. A second approach in the article suggests considering residency as a plus factor to increase a person's eligibility for housing. Denver's prioritization policy is open to anyone eligible for affordable housing based on income, but gives people priority but gives, people, gives priority to people based on how long they have lived in Denver or had lived in Denver with the point scoring system. 
The Department of Housing Stability consulted with the City Attorney's Office and they approved the proposed policy indicating there were no legal issues before it was passed by the City Council. This aligned with leading practices which say part of developing an effective policy is meeting with key stakeholders. In addition to meeting with the City Attorney's Office, the Department also met with the Housing Stability Strategic Advisors who provide recommendations and guidance to the Department. As shown beginning on page 47, while progress has been made in other areas of the prioritization program, there are items that still need to be completed before the policy's implementation date. Policies and procedures and training still need to be developed for the program before the July 1, 2024 implementation date. The department plans to hire a program manager for the prioritization policy by fourth quarter of this year. The goal is for the program manager to be involved in developing these policies and procedures and training for property managers and developers. The program manager will also be responsible for ensuring compliance with the prioritization policy. Therefore, we make the following three recommendations. I will read all three recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Recommendation 2.1 on page 49 states the asset and compliance manager should work with the prioritization program manager to develop and document policies and procedures for implementing the prioritization policy. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 2.2 on page 49 states the asset and compliance manager should work with the prioritization program manager to develop and provide training for property managers and developers related to implementing the prioritization policy and ensuring compliance. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 2.3 on page 50 states that once the prioritization policy has been finalized and implemented, the asset and compliance manager should work with the prioritization program manager to use accurate and reliable data to monitor program effectiveness and compliance. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of September 30th, 2024. This concludes our presentation. We thank you for your time and would like to open the floor for any questions and comments from the department and audit committee members. Jennifer. Thank you so much. And uh, I will just say it's nice to end on this note in particular because this is a policy that we worked very diligently on and really sought to learn from the examples of peer cities who have done this work before so that we could craft a really sound policy to serve our interests here in Denver. And so I was glad to see uh, that that uh, come forward in this audit as well. Of course, the implementation date is not until uh, July 1st, and so we have always planned to do the things recommended in this audit um, ahead of that date and are happy to uh, con uh, agree with those recommendations as consistent with our plans. Thank you. Uh, committee, questions? No? Well, again, thank you. I appreciate the important work that you do and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Uh -huh. um, next item is general business, which consists of our next meeting here on December 21st at 9 a.m. Um, with that, I'd like to adjourn into executive session to meet with our external auditors over the 2023 independent audit. So, Thank you very much. <laughs>